Welcome to this episode of the Brookie and Berger podcast, and welcome Darren Burgess. G'day Brookie. That, uh, this week's version of You'll Never Walk Alone, which we, we play every week, uh, was a bit, it's a bit different. You actually heard the, uh, the Liverpool fans singing then, but uh, it's actually from a Pink Floyd track known as uh, Fearless, which is uh, from their 1971 album, Metal. And uh, you probably heard at the start, Roger Ward is playing a bit of acoustic guitar and they, uh, they finish off the track with, uh, with a bit of Liverpool singing. So it's a very popular song in Liverpool, that one, uh, anyway. So Pink Floyd was the choice of our, this week's guest and uh, I know he's an old mate of yours, Berger, so I'll let you introduce him. Yeah, very, very uh, happy and privileged to have uh, one of the great people and comfortably one of the best practitioners I've ever come across in the field, uh, Jason Weber from uh, from over in Perth. Jace, welcome to the Brookie and Berger podcast. G'day, Berger. Thank you for your very kind introduction. Hello, Pete. Thanks for having me. No worries, mate. Uh, I reckon that most people who listen to this podcast will know your name and about you a little bit. They might know you as the old bull from Old Bull Fitness on on uh, you know social media platforms. But could you give us a bit of a, a history um, of where you come from and and uh, where you're at at the moment? Um, okay, I guess the, the quick rundown is uh, <coughs> um, studied at University of New South Wales, um, did a bachelor's and a master's degree there. Um, went and walked the earth for a couple of years, came back as professional rugby in Australia and the world really took off. So I got in in the uh, junior ranks there as a coach, um, did a couple of years working for free, ended up with the Queensland Reds as my first job in around that 1998. Uh, went from the Reds as uh, at that time there was only ever one conditioning coach, so you were everything. And in fact, I was the, I was the masseur for a long time. Um, <laughs> I went Queensland Reds, Waratahs, Wallabies, uh, did a stint at the Wallabies, which was seven years directly with the team and then another year sort of running their, uh, their development system. Um, then a couple of uh, failed business venture and then uh, in my working with you, Darren, we ended up at uh, Fremantle Football Club, which... Uh, was a great journey of 12 years, a lot of ups and downs, uh, very, very high and very, very lows, um, which uh, came to a rather abrupt end uh, only a couple of days ago. And so we now find ourselves uh, entering a brand, uh, you know, a brave new world. I reckon um, <clears throat> certainly all three of us on this call have, have been through what you've been through in the last uh, couple of days. Um, we, we might go hard and and go early if you don't mind, Jay. So yeah, just go through. What are your emotions? It it, it happened uh, quite publicly on uh, Sunday or Monday. I think the news Sunday, broke Sunday, out Sunday. here. Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Uh, certainly on in Monday's sort of yeah, AFL yeah. website. For those who are overseas listening to this, there's a there's a website which sort of breaks all the news in the AFL. And on Monday, it sort of came out that the Freo Dockers had. Um, uh, dispense with a few staff members, of which Jason was one of them. It's now we're recording this on the Thursday, so that's four days afterwards. For whatever you can share us, mate, because a lot of people have been through it, and I'm, I've certainly spoken about mine uh, on this podcast a few weeks back. What are you going through, mate? Well, I mean, I think 
without question, the, the first the first thing shocked. Like, um, obviously, circumstances in the AFL and in the world, like let's be honest, in the COVID uh, situation have changed the financial situation in the AFL radically. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm a rather clinical person, so I'd, I'd figured out broad probabilities of what I thought would happen. And certainly one of them was, you could just be told that's it um, and, and be sent on your way. Um, the fact that it came uh, rather abruptly uh, last weekend was a shock. Um, and emotionally, my biggest concerns are straight away from my family. I've got teenage children, Lee uh, finishing up school, one's finishing this year, one's got two years to go. And then the immediacy of, um, you know, how, you know, you've got to keep your house over your family's head. And, and one of the, the real challenges, which is probably unique to WA, is that we are the most isolated capital city in the world. In that, and in that yeah. vein, we have two AFL teams. So one's just got rid of me. The other one, just by virtue of me having worked for Fremantle, wouldn't want us to know me. And so there's no other job like you can go into straight away. So, um, and that's notwithstanding the current financial issues around other environments. So, yeah, the, the fear factor is quite immense. Um, but um, I will say that I've, I've long held, so 25 years I've been in this job professionally at, at, at I guess the, that management level in that, in the early days was only me, and then as it's grown, I've got staff. Um, for 20 of those years, I would say I've been working on other projects, trying to get other things going. Um, I'm very technically yeah. orientated, so there's been some software things here and there. Um, I'm rounding out a PhD at the moment, which has commercial possibilities, and I'm already speaking with some companies on those things. So I have other things that I'm really keen and was really keen to get into. Um, that timetable has just been ramped up immensely. Um, there are the immediate, immediate, immediate uh, issues uh, that you've, you've got to provide for your family. So whether that means I end up going packing shells at Coles for a little while, or um, I was offered a research position the other day at a, at a university, which was um, which is a unique project in and of itself, but academic wages are, are probably a little bit limited relative to where we've come from. So, yeah, I think I've moved on pretty quickly, as, as quickly as I can from the, the anger piece and the, um, the resentment because there's too much negative energy around that. And and I, I need to move on and be creative and create really things that don't currently exist for me and my, my family and I. And so that's probably where we're at. What, what um, uh, and feel free to Tell me to shut up at any point here. Um, what, 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 what are the strategies that you've used in the last four days? Like we spoke at length yesterday, um, yeah. and uh, obviously under full disclosure, Jason's a good, really good mate of mine and someone who I respect massively. So I'm a bit biased and shared the shock um, that that he went through um, because I, I just can't believe that. Um, any club wouldn't see his value, but what are the strategies of used to get to a get to this place over the last four days? Um, mate, without question, um, there's one trick I have in my armory, um, which was learned many years ago for a lot of personal reasons, but 
Um, I've studied quite extensively in Transcendental Meditation uh, and know very, very few people would know that. And, um, but in the current circumstance, um, I was just literally on a phone call before this to a, a friend and I said, uh, like literally on Tuesday was the day I, my wife went to work, I dropped the kids to school and I came home to this empty house and like there's literally this thinking of, well, okay, I've actually got to make something happen now. And that's as close as I've ever come to what anyone might, what I might consider a breakdown. Um, but being able to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to hit skills we know. And I meditated and I've, I've been doing what a former teacher told me was, uh, he used to term industrial level meditation. So <laughs> it's, it's really helped me quieten my mind. Um, and lose some of the baggage that is inherent in an emotional situation. Um, and, I, and I'll be very honest, that's, that's how I've done it to this point. And, and that whole concept of the negative energy, if I, if I dwell, if I, if I harbour resentment and those type of things, Mate, I know, like, the three of us and probably most of the listening group know what that does to your brain, uh, the limitations that places on creative capacity, executive function, all those things, and I need them now more than ever. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm writing notes this morning on um, some, some work I, I, I'd like to do in the near future and things that I think could be con contribute to other environments. Um, but yeah, the, the meditation piece is absolutely critical. And you mentioned yesterday um, the uh, number of messages and things like that you've received from players and staff and things like that. Does that, uh, you know, does that help? Because often we can one of the one of the better lessons that I learned and and just on that meditation. By the way, after we spoke, I reckon in two thousand and twelve. Um, I enrolled myself uh, in a transcendental meditation course when I arrived from uh, Liverpool to Adelaide and uh, studied that um, uh, extensively so I know what you I know what you mean with that um, but often we can be defined by our jobs in this industry in particular as as people um, rather than a separate people who happens to work in professional sport. How have you found the, the level of support that you've received across the industry and, and, and from friends and players and things like that? Mate, I reckon there's two answers in there. Um, there's the, the support thing, which I'll get to quickly, and then there's the definition of self, which I think is really, really important um, and has been important for me. Um, the support, you know, that first, you get that first moment and even I remember, I'm in the same room where I was told on the phone, so um, I remember being told, and I'm just like sitting there going, why? Like, what possible reason? And, and you get, the, oh, no, look, it's not you, it's not taking you. Mate, it sounds like you're breaking up with a girlfriend when I was 16. You know, it's not you, it's me, it's me, it's all me. And I'm like, is this what we're really doing? Is this, is this the same shit? Anyway, excuse me, language. Um, That's all right. So... There's that question of immediacy of self-doubt. Have I done something wrong? What, what's my practice? And I mean, some of the, the baggage that has come with my departure has been around the injuries issue, which 
I mean, most of our injury list is trauma-based. And even, unfortunately, in the post-COVID period, the soft tissues that we've had, um, you trace them back and all of them are related to two issues, which I probably won't talk about. Um, they're related to two issues, neither of which I had control over. So yeah. um, as much as people are buying for your blood, that the injury thing, I mean, I, so you have that first bit of self-doubt and then you examine the facts that you've gone through yourself and then you get the support and, and the overwhelming support I've had has been unbelievable and that reaffirms, you know, even, you know, again, you've mentioned our friendship, Dad, but you and I speaking, I've got another few people that are probably in that category of equally, you know, um, very highly respected professionals like yourself. Um, and you get that feedback and then you get feedback from players. And I mean, I've got a player who will return to play this week who um, returned from an injury, saw multiple specialists. That's what we had to do. We followed the specialist advice um, and didn't work, didn't work at all. I asked him to take a punt on a different philosophy and to this point it's worked and he will play, he's heading into reserves this week, so um, that's, that's awesome. And get a message from him saying, mate, I wouldn't be here without you. And I'm like, okay, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what other people are saying. Um, so that's been awesome and I, again, I've tried to say, okay, I'm not a bad professional, I've done some good stuff, let's focus on that. The next, the other thing you asked about, mate, was definition of self, and certainly, um, mate, I, I could be classified as institutionalised. Mate, I've been at, I've been at two jobs for 20 years. Um, yeah. I haven't moved around a lot. Is that by choice or by luck or by, you know, it's one of many things, I suppose. But you've been in a system for a long time. Um, but two things, the, the drive to do things outside of football, so my other business interests, albeit a very small, you mentioned my website, obbull.com, um, obbullfitness.com, sorry. I mean, I, I used to blog on that quite a bit, and they're just things that interest me. Darren and I did a great project on there, which, which went well, but um, those things have always been on the outside, and then engaging in a PhD, has been probably one of the most refreshing elements of my recent years in that I've learned an enormous number of skill sets uh, that are going to support me in the post-football phase. So the definition of myself is not as a just a high-performance manager and certainly not just as a Fremantle Football Club employee. Um, I feel I'm very comfortable that I'm not that, but having those other interests and having those other paths of learning beyond, uh, <laughs> beyond the airport. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Just got a plane going overhead. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, having those other elements to my, you know, the other strings to my bows really helped. And... We'll, we'll, um, we'll end the, the Frio discussion, I guess the immediate Frio discussion there. Um, going back through your career, one of the things that stands out for me, um, or that, that's a real feature, is you've, you've worked with two of the more sort of um, 
talked about coaches uh, in the world of sport. Uh, you spent a lot of time early on with Eddie Jones, and right. you spent a lot of time at uh, Fremantle with Ross Lyon. Um, uh, and rather than necessarily going into the traits of each individual, um, how did you go about handling scenarios where the coach might have said, no, we're doing it this way, no, we're doing it that way, and, and you thought that that may put the performance or players uh, at some sort of risk? Um, how did you, you, you handle those, what were your strategies to get through those situations? Because I imagine there might have been a few with, with yeah, those two yeah, fairly strong, strong-willed individuals. Yeah. Look, mate, I, I, mean, I think firstly it's, it's fair to classify both those coaches as uh, both of them incredibly intelligent men um, and, and in their own way incredibly creative. Um, I have examples I could share with both, of both those coaches that their insight was just... Uh, extraordinary, um, and to, to delve in through the you know the myriad of complexity that is associated with either code of football, and to come up with something gen- genuinely creative uh, was awesome. Um, both of them were very systems orientated men. Um, they had a very strong view of this is what I do, this is this is how I operate. Um, further to that, I would say that at at a, at a number of periods, I was, um, whether you say good enough or, or skilled enough or whatever, to help educate them. And I think that's always our job, to yeah, yeah. convey what we know and contribute to, to their environment. Um, and I think in both cases, I would like to say, I like to think that they, they learned elements off me and were able to grow. Um, but when the tough conversations come, I mean, there's that point where, you know, you need to take a stand and there's, there's a lot of skill involved in negotiating those elements, um, not the least of which I have a few subversive skills, uh, not subversive, I would say covert, um, um, covert um, psychological tricks that um, not the least of which is one called mirroring which uh, is an interrogation technique. Um, don't come and ask me how I learned this, but, um, <laughs> but you, you, you gain trust with people by certain ways you move and certain body language. I always use that extensively. Now, did it always work? No. Um, but in terms of putting people in a place where they're more comfortable and they're more uh, likely to be receptive to what you're trying to share, that's all you're trying to do. You're not, it's not like you're uh, doing a crocodile dundee, you know, put your hand up and knock the ball out type trick. But it's, can you gain the trust enough to convey the information you have? Is your information always taken on board? Not always. And there have been times where um, things haven't been taken on board and the coach says, no, we're going to do it another way, and it goes well, and there's been situations where it doesn't go well, and I've kind of got like the, I told you so thing. I mean, I have I have a, a brilliant example from that not a couple of weeks ago with Fremantle. I told you so. You know, I, I told you not to do that, and you did it, and it ended battle. Um, but that's the nature of the game, mate. We're not, one of the problems that, and I think I come from a strength and conditioning background. You can go through a zealot phase. Right? That's what I call. So when 
coaches get to a point where they reckon they know everything. And it's the worst point because you think you're really sharp and you've got everything. And until you get to the point where you realise enough to know how little you know about everything, um, that's a dangerous spot. And there was probably times when I thought, mate, I'm right, how could you possibly do it another way? Um, but coaches sometimes see through that and do their, their own way. So, um, yeah, those conversations are always challenging. Trying to keep the emotion out of it is the most important thing. And say your piece. And one of the, the other, the next bit, is to let it go. Like, our job yeah. is to provide provide information. So you either take that information on and use it, or you don't. And if you don't, you can't hang on to it. I probably did at periods early on, um, which didn't do well for my health. Um, but I've learned since then, as I, as I got older and I moved past my zealot phase, uh, that you become a bit more enlightened and you go, well, you know, this is not, this is the path, you know, the, the coach ultimately has the total responsibility. You know, Ross used to always say, I'm the one that goes to the, the media conference. And even though that's a, a moderately trivial thing, it is still representative of the whole. The coach has total responsibility. So um, they're empowered to make decisions and not to take advice. Um, and, uh, and I think we're not always right, you know, as much as we think we are. Hmm. I'd love to get uh, a couple of examples. You, you mentioned there, Jason, I mean, about, uh, you know, things that both Eddie and, and Ross did that sort of blew you away about their insight and so on. I mean, can you, can you give us a couple of stories in that line? Uh, I think the one for me, the Eddie Jones one that always stands out for me was 2003 World Cup semi-final um, against the All Blacks. And there was a huge, there's a huge backstory to this um, in that our team wasn't, we, we'd come off the back of the 1999 team. There were a few guys left, not many. Uh, George Gregan was probably still at the top of his powers, but we've lost a lot of other significant firepower. So we had a lot of young players, um, arguably some that aren't. Like we, we left a team in 99 that had you know, six or seven of the greatest players ever to play for Australian rugby for the Wallabies. So we're in a, a different phase, and we approached that whole tournament. We we're going to outwork everybody, and and we put in a, a very specific running program and all the rest of it, and and how we approached it. Anyway, to the uh, that semi-final comes up, and Eddie Jones just says, well, "Right, the way we're going to beat these guys, we I think we can." He never said it so much like this, but he thought we could outwork him. So he said, when we get the ball defensively, we're not going to kick it dead, not going to kick it out. We're going to kick to the, to the um, I'm going to say boundary, but the sideline, right? The, for those listening overseas, the boundary in AFL. <laughs> the, um, so kick to the, to the touchline, but we're not going to put it out. We're going to make them right back because they would put, um, and the name of the player, the Kiwi 5'8", I can't think of his name offhand. Peter, you might know it, but he, he used to defend. Yeah. He used to defend as a fullback. And so um, he would drop back to fullback in that position. And so the idea was kick it back to him, make him run it back, beat the brains out of him, and then we're going to run them to death. And as it turned out, that's what happened. 
But it was such a departure from what the Wallabies were doing at that time. Uh, it was a different game plan. I think it shocked the All Blacks. And the commitment of A, Eddie to a innovative plan, but then B, to the group to just go after it the way they did. You know, unfortunately, that was our grand final and we couldn't replicate it the, the week after against um, an amazing you know, England team. But um, such, such is the time. But, but that was Eddie's. I think Ross, Ross was, um, he had some skill sets which not many people I think would know about um, because of, you know, I guess what his public demeanor is. But he had a, he had a unique way of working with athletes. And one of the, the things about Ross that I always felt um, I worked really, really well with was when we came up with challenges. So when we, we go through the monitoring piece, and, and I have a particular way that I address monitoring, um, but I, I would come up, I'd identify these little blips of information and you'd go, well, okay, that might be something, but we need to act on that. And it was always really easy when I had a, some curly ones or ones that might have had a little bit more psychological background or behavioural. I could always go to, to Ross with that and he always handled it really, really well. Uh, and his, his uh, method in dealing with that was always great. Jeez, Berger, you were at the airport then, dude. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Planes going over. Yeah, sitting on the Sunshine Coast in the sun. Those planes. Yeah, so I do apologise, guys. Yeah, that's all right, mate. Like I said, I think Ross, uh, his insight to work with people in that way was, like I said, a characteristic that not many people would know about, and I thought was a, a, a you know, one of his strongest traits as a coach. Mm. What about um, uh, working with, you, you mentioned before that 20 of the 25 years you've been in a management capacity. I remember uh, catching a flight over and back to Perth with you back yeah. in 2008, which kind of started that. all that. Yeah, and uh, how have you handled one of the uh, issues that you face as a high performance manager or whatever terminology people want to call themselves personally I, I couldn't give a crap yeah, but um, as someone who oversees medical physio uh, and fitness we'll call it departments the integration of the two when there's you know fundamentally at times a different philosophy between sort of fitness medical and um, and potentially physio uh, how do you handle that scenario? What are the strategies that you've used over the over the years to successfully manage that? Um, I would start by saying that that hasn't always been the position. That certainly when I came to AFL, the original reason I came to AFL, um, or the, the the nature of the job was to the coach at the time at Fremantle. Um, was a very, in his own way, a very insightful coach, but could get overawed by the medical and stuff a bit. So my job was to really um, bring the medical information together, um, bring it into more of a conversational tone and not as confronting and, and communicate what needed to be communicated and the appropriate recommendations. Um, so the immediacy of the, that environment was I needed to determine 
where the staff were at and what they, philosophically what where they sat, all those type of things. But mate, I had such a great experience in rugby. Um, as I said in my early days, it was you know one physio, one doc, me, and that was for many years. And I did a lot of work uh, even back in the Australian under 21s when we'd go away on you know three and four week tours for world championships. I would work with a physio. Uh, I've got this amazing physio from, from Brisbane, Linda Bounce, um, and she would do the physio work and I would be doing the massage or soft tissue work. And she taught me all the, you know, the whole range of skills such that I was doing almost, um, she would do the highly technical elements, but she would get me, she'd say, okay, I need this, this and this done. So I would almost be doing that junior physio role. And so from that perspective, I learned a lot about physios. I learned then a lot about the different schools in Australia and how they teach. Um, so when I got to Freo, one of the things then was to figure out where our physios sat and philosophically where they sat. And, and at that time, 2008, I'd done that review with you, Darren. So we knew a lot about where they were at. And, and I had the opportunity early on to say, right, you, you, and you were gone, we're bringing new ones. But I was very confident that the skill set we had was unique. But what they'd been done, because there was no collaboration, uh, and there was really no collaboration with the doctor, um, it was very isolated from SNC, and, and the guys in the SNC at that time were probably fighting their own challenges and were um, probably, I think, not quite experienced enough to appreciate what was required. So I, my number one strategy week one was to try and start getting the physios out of their physio practice and come and look at the world and come and see what's happening in the gym, be part of it, don't be scared of it, understand it, um, come on the field, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the only real small change I made was we had a, a doctor with uh, extraordinary experience, so we kept him and then I brought another doctor on to support him who was a a sports physician who ended up being a, a great team. So then it was really starting to bring everybody together and get it on the table. This is where we're at, this is what I'm about. What are you about? And in some regards, if you don't answer that question directly, if you don't have that self-knowledge, you often defend yourself hard in situations where you don't need to. And that's what I was seeing you know, you see physios have become very defensive of their patch, or oh, you cause the injury, because they don't know what's happening outside. So once they, they saw we had common ground, they saw yes. there was a, a relationship between what they did and what they did. So, mate, when I left Fremantle a week ago, um, mate, physios were flowing, physios as you see, flow together across the gym into the physio practice. So my, my coaches in this, my last evolution, before, they're all empowered to go into the physio and discuss the athletes that are their responsibility with the physio. And they're educated to understand what the physio is talking about and to understand, I want you to look at the MRIs. And in fact, you know, maybe in some ways I've made myself redundant. I've always run my department like a teaching hospital. My job is to teach. My job is to replicate as best I can my skill set so that when I'm not in the room or I'm, in a, I'm on the field and someone's in the gym, 
they're operating at a level that I would expect. So, yeah, bringing people into, into uh, recognising common ground mate, is the most important thing. Yeah, I must admit, you, you've done that absolutely, before you jump in, Brookie, um, you've done that absolutely superbly, and speaking of people, staff that you've worked with, even uh, people like Keith D'Souza, who, who's only been yeah, there yeah. briefly, you know, they've just been um, in awe of the fact that at every point, whenever there's an injury or a training program shift or a... Um, you know, a six-day break versus a four-day break versus a nine-day break. Uh, they've sort of highlighted the fact that, okay, this is the philosophy we're going into for this period, and this is why. So that, that's been a big, a big strength. On on a similar line, and you talked earlier, Jason, about uh, being blamed for injury. I mean, uh, yes. you know, when particularly when clubs have a bad injury run, as, as Freo have done this year. I mean, everyone wants to blame someone, and especially yeah, the supporters. The supporters in particular, they want someone to blame. But um, what, what do you think is the responsibility of, of uh, say, the, the fitness staff, the medical staff, the coaching staff? I mean, uh, where, where does that sit with you, the whole blame for injury? Uh, the, the, the interesting fact, I, I sort of reflected on this a little bit, but if, if I was to convey to people that don't know the intricacies of the environment, Right, where the where where my influence lies, where my department's influence. You've got to understand that we do 99% of our exertion and physical load is in the football on the football field with the football coaches. So, and it's an immensely complex environment. So we can acutely manage some of those things. Again, the the illusion that because we have GPS monitors on that we somehow know everything that's going on is ridiculous. Um, and, and anyone that believes that is clearly um, still in that zealot phase. Um, so the responsibility lies across the group without, and it lies with the coaches. It has to lie with everybody because as much as we can put in programs that are preventative in nature and we can tick all the boxes for this and this, this it has to lay across the environment. And I would go further to say that when you look at complexities that I faced, even acutely this year, but also a lot long term, players need to take responsibility as well in that if they come, if they arrive to engage in a full-scale training in a poor condition, they put themselves at enormous risk. Now, this has been widely documented in the NFL when you have players turning up to training and the coach is going nuts and the training girls then they have you know, ACLs back to back to back to back. Well, it's not ideal what the coach is doing, so there's responsibility there, but if you know that's coming, you need to be prepared for that. Now, it's not as acute in the AFL, but the COVID break showed quite clearly that and I've spoken to, you know, every week we've been playing reserves games. So you get to talk to your officers a lot. And the general conversation has been, anybody who had, had, infl- had uh, issues over the COVID break struggled in that first month or so of football. And that's exactly what Fremantle saw. Exactly. And, you know, everyone talks about, you know, it's on the news every night, you know, where we're tracking COVID cases and we're backtracking. 
You know, that's exactly the same thing we do. We go through every nuance of programs and you highlight the issues. Now, they're never one issue. There's always a component of a couple of pieces. But unquestionably, uh, you know, the players, that time off is, is, has had an impact. So the reality is that the responsibility in reality lies across the board. And I mean, I could throw another like, grenade into the mix. Is Please do. <laughs> if I'm throwing them, let's throw a few. But yeah. when you get players, so I mean, I've been privileged and honoured to work with some of the most extraordinary athletes, um, I think, in contact field sport in Australia, maybe in the world, I don't know, but in, in my experience. Um, but I've also worked with guys at the other end of the spectrum who arguably do not care. They think they know it all. They're probably in their zealot phase. But they're getting paid a lot of money to do something that they've been doing for many years, but they don't recognise the kryptonite that everybody has. And like, if you don't prepare, you're going to struggle. No, no, mate, I've got it on night and night. No, and so there's those ones that are a bit, um, they want to go against the flow. Uh, they want to do it their own way. And then there's the other ones that really probably fell into this more by luck than anything else. I mean, AFL is a great example. You have players like at Fremantle at the moment. You have this um, Caleb Sarong, young midfielder. Most uh, brilliantly prepared young athlete. Uh, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, another one, uh, Brett Buell, carpenter, got recruited as a, as a mature age athlete, but he'd studied so impeccably how to prepare himself. He's been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But you get the opposite of that. You get the players who turn up, and this just happened. I fell into it, you know, for whatever reason. I'm here, but you know what? It's the white line concept. I'll be right once I get on the field. I don't need to worry about anything else. I'll just go on the field, I'll be okay. And the number of times I've seen that attitude pervade uh, in both codes, in, in right across the years, um, and that attitude never, ever succeeds. Because, I mean, even from my start, from the back of the 90s, the demands of sport have gone through the roof. You know, we've seen the evolution in AFL over in the last five, 10 years. The game's changed since last year. There's enough data to suggest that, to, to document that. But you can't have that, yeah, it'll be all right on a night attitude. It just does not work. What about uh, external influences, uh, Jason? I mean, uh, you know, players or coaches who've got some guru that they go to or they're influenced by, and uh, or players who want to go outside the system, and uh, and you know, their their wife sees some, you know, yeah. guru who reckons he can fix all your problems. I mean, we've all, you know, we've all uh, yeah, been yeah. there, and that's certainly one of the challenges uh, that we all have. How, what's your approach to to that sort of situation? I think. Um Number one, so if I'm sitting with an athlete and they, they come up with that, I'm going to say always, like, I'm, I'm here for you. My job is to facilitate everything I can do to get you on the field. So let's talk through it. What have you got? Who is this person? Okay. And then try and break it down and, and look at what, you know, is it, uh, is it a chiropractor? Is it, uh, you know, is it someone, you know, 
waving magic potions and you know, incense across it. What is it? And, and try to get the first principles. But right? what's the core of what we need to do here? Because you engage them first, engage the athlete, I think, to discuss it. Review strongly the facts that you have about the issue. I mean, the number of times I've had someone say, oh, I'm going with this guru, this. I'm like, do you do understand that across the group, let's say your, let's just say hamstring strength, for instance, you have a hamstring problem. Your hamstring strength is in the bottom 5% of the group, right? So do you think that it might be plausible that if we improve that and you, you, you know, applied yourself to that, that might be a, something that could change. So you have to work with them. I think if you, if you go hard at, no, we're not doing that, and that's ridiculous, you, this day and age, the, the younger athletes coming through, they don't deal with that. You have to engage them. Um, and, and the flip side to that is, um, and I haven't had many of these experiences, but I've also had some, the flip side is that you find another practitioner that actually has a skill set that is unique and works. Um, I've had one or two of those. I particularly um, a masseur that I worked with um, in Sydney. Um, some, ex you know, he was considered guru-esque, but in fact, when I spent time with him and learnt, not learnt, but appreciated some of the techniques he was using, what they were aiming to achieve. Uh, I learned a lot, and I've subsequently used them extensively. Like that's that 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 practitioner has a skill set that that I don't have access to, so I, I need to I need to use that. And finally, from from me, we all have the the great privilege, as you mentioned before, of working with some remarkable athletes. But to to to, to give us your opinion on uh, on who's the best athlete you've worked with, say, one for rugby and one for AFL, just from pure athleticism point of view? Purely, uh, look, I... It's, it's, it's a complex question in that the way athletes apply themselves and, and deal with things is, is critical. So I'm going to go with, um, and this is not excluding in rugby, I've worked with a lot of great athletes and a number is probably a short half head between a couple here. But I'm going to go with Ben Tune. Um, yeah. I, I started working with Ben at the end of his career and Ben had a, had a knee injury that, and this is, a, this is an interesting story because some of this resonates with problems that I've seen at Fremantle, but Ben injured his knee as a child in a motorbike accident and he basically had uh, quite a, uh, was a big um, tibial plateau um, damage, massive. Anyway, as a younger athlete, he was able to get through and, and incredibly powerful and explosive. Um, and this, this brilliant, um, very pure uh, threat of aggression. You know, he's a loveliest bloke off the field, but you put him on the field and just like a raging bull. Um, I remember doing a rehab session. So when I got to, when I went to Queensland, his knee was in big trouble. Um, and this was at the end of 98, going into the 99 World Cup season. And I'd, uh, again, at the time we'd had lots of problems, couldn't get him going. And I, I'd said, look, we're gonna stop doing what we're doing because what you've done hasn't worked. And we ended up doing this program of um, 
We did a lot of soft sand work. Try, uh, just kept, this was before the days of Alter G, um, anti-gravity treadmills and stuff. I just kept trying to take load out of this knee where I could. And I said, you know, what, whatever fitness work we're going to do, we're not going to do it on field. We're going to just do speed and all your critical elements on field. Anyway, um, we've done all this work with Ben and uh, this, this one day we're doing this rehab block before a game in Sydney and we're holding pads. He was going on as a reserve in the second half of this game. And the physio and I were holding some pads for him. And I was throwing the ball out and he was just charging in and hitting. And I remember, I said, oh, mate, you've got to, hit, you've got to start winding up. You're going on the field in there. And he's come in and he's hit the, hit the bags that hard. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fairly big dude, so I was okay, but um, he hit the physio and the physio whiplashed his neck and he was basically knocked out. And at the, my immediate response was un, unbridled laughter. But then I had to kind of check he didn't break his neck. But ben, Ben's application, like his raw physical talent, but then his ability to deal with that trauma uh, and get through. He played, you know, we got him through that year, got him to the 99 World Cup. He was a genius. And then, um, unfortunately, you know, this is the story you get. The last game he played for the Wallabies. He tore a hamstring, but he, by then his knee was so decrepit, he was basically hobbling every, whenever he ran. Um, and, you know, we, we, we kept playing and kept going, and no matter what I did at that point, he was, and so his knee inevitably caused his hamstring injury, um, which is, you know, the story that many people don't see, or hear, particularly in AFL. Um, but in AFL, I, I would have to say, um, holistically, Nathan Fife. Um, Nathan's a different cat, um, a very, very different person. Um, and he wouldn't show any of what he is publicly, really. Um, but um, we didn't get on in our early days. Um, but we got to a point where he had this groin injury that was just, it was gonna, um, he had osteoarthritis, and he wasn't going anywhere. He was in trouble. And, um, and we basically sat down and, uh, and we sat down to get in my office and I said, look, I can see enough in you that I'm really intrigued. I'd like to try and do this really properly one-on-one, and, but it's going to take honesty and it's going to take commitment. And he, he voiced his own opinions and we came to this agreement that we were both going to commit. And to this day, that was extraordinary. And he didn't waver. Like from that point, uh, we spent a lot of time, a lot of time in those first couple of years of getting it right and doing some things that um, I think, well, definitely, I definitely know our physio staff at the time had never seen before. Um, and it was a lot, probably a lot of things now that are more commonly accepted. Um, but nonetheless, um, his commitment to task and once you once you explain what we were doing and why we were doing it, it was unbelievable. And there was we were fortunate enough on the back of one of his broken legs, he had a uh, a video documentary done about some work we were doing at the time, and there's some snippets of him doing these uh, 150 metre reps up a hill in, in Perth, um, the DNA Tower in uh, Kings Park. And the video shows a little bit, but I still, to this day, remember, like, I, I took him right out to the end. 
and he came back and won a Brownlow the next year or, or, or very shortly after that. But that commitment to task was, was unbelievable. And in my mind, my career, unparalleled. And, you know, I, I said to him after I got the call the other day, I just rang him and said, listen, mate, thank you for, for trusting me. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, I hope I repaid it. So, I, yeah, they're the two, I'd say. We are running a bit out of time and I was going to ask you about uh, Nathan Fife because for those who don't know, um, the, you know, one of the premier players and one the best player in the competition, um, I'm not sure what year it was, but we thanked and credited yourself um, for, for what you just described. So, um, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about him, but I, I will give you a final question, mate, and it's a, a fairly yeah. common one, but I, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. As someone in the, in the industry who's gone through a bit, um, best advice for people coming through, what would it be for you coming through the industry as uh, in sports medicine? I think at present, with the way it's gone across the board, um, multi-skilled, multi is, is going to be the, the words for the future. I think um, I've always prided myself on, as I've already described, I'm, I'm very strong on my strength and conditioning background. I'm very strong in sports science. I think I'm very strong with physio in terms of understanding so I can work with people. And I think I'm pretty solid with the docs. Um, so having that, that skill set so that you can empathise with others, so you can work well in the team. Um, and I think the, the other one I have commented on elsewhere is this day and age of technology, I think your ability to um, work in departments with people who are, you know, the, everyone talks about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Well, they're not magic. They're, they're just tools that we use and understanding how to utilise those things and more importantly understanding their limitations what they can and can't show you uh, is critical and I think that's where we're going, everything's data it's getting bigger, it's more and it's great, it's fantastic, now, I really enjoy weirdly enough I enjoy coding and statistics but the point probably is that I know where the limitations lie so it's not a, you know, in statistics they talk about the black box of artificial intelligence. It's like you put numbers in and you get stuff out and you don't know what happened. Um, so understand that in the current environment is critical because um, sometimes BS baffles brain and you have people coming to you saying, well, I've got this and I've got that. Well, if you don't know anything about what they're talking about, it's really hard to have an opinion. So, yeah, I think... Being, if I, if I wrap it up, you've got to have a profession. So I am an SNC coach. That's my number one thing. Um, but I'm multi-skilled in that. I've, I've pushed myself to have high-level ability in other areas. Um, so being, I wouldn't consider myself a jack of all trades. I'm a specialist in one thing that's very well versed in others. And I think if, if you can do that, you're probably going to have a good career. Yeah, it's a great point, mate. Um, 
Yeah, look, we really, really appreciate you coming on, particularly at this sort of uh, interesting and, and perhaps sensitive time. Um, for, for those who are listening, uh, yeah, he didn't hesitate, Jason didn't he hesitate to come on and was really open to speak about it, which I think is a, a great testament um, to his character and, and, and also a commitment to the industry, which is something that we've spoken about as another plane goes over the head. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for coming on, mate. We really, really appreciate it and look forward to... Uh, I was looking forward to seeing you in Cairns next week, but we'll, we'll have to yeah. connect another time when we're, when we're able to uh, connect through, uh, through this interesting period. Uh, we will, mate. Uh, we will absolutely, mate. Thank you very much for the invitation. And, mate, I'll publicly say thank you for your support in the last couple of days. I mean, uh, when we... You know, people talk about mental health and it's a massive issue across... You know, everywhere at the moment, uh, but to have, uh, you know, I'd rather have a few really good friends and people you can depend on, uh, as opposed to a, a plethora of sort of, you know, Instagram followers or whatever. Yeah, um, exactly. So, mate, yeah, it's been fantastic and I appreciate it, and thanks, Pete, for having me as well. Oh, it's been great, Jase. We really appreciate it, and uh, we certainly wish you all the best for which I'm sure will be a fascinating uh, future the rest of your career. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, boys. Bye.